Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of The Unbalanced Note. We have a fantastic show for you today. We're in Dallas, Texas, where the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and we're locked down in a quarantine still on day 3087. Oh, my goodness, I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the man who I like to play video games with, drink with, and make music with, Mark Chaffadini. How the hell are you? I'm fine as long as I get to keep the masters, but other than that, we're golden. We, 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 we are golden for sure, for sure, man. But I'm excited about this episode. I'm excited to talk to a, a phenomenal musician, a, a legendary composer who's done everything from TV shows to video games. I've played them all, I've seen them all, and I love this music. It just... It brings into these ears perfectly. Jason Graves, the champion of music. How are you doing, sir? Oh my gosh, the energy is so high, Brian. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's my WrestleMania announcing voice for sure. <laughs> I think I think you almost hit like a, a Jack Black. We just watched Kung Fu Panda uh, yesterday, I think. And you know, at the very beginning, he says like, Legend tells of a legendary warrior whose kung fu was the stuff of legend that's what i thought you were gonna say like legendary composer jason graves it's it's good it's good to have energy and be excited man i love it no i we love it too we love talking to composers and musicians and all of that stuff and you know i i have a wrestling show on this podcast network and i really love pro wrestling so i oh, try to really? like yo really <laughs> nice. yes can i get a hell yeah <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, we're, that's where all the energy comes from. And it's just, you know, maybe a little cabin fever in here and there. But during this quarantine, this COVID-19 situation, I just want to ask you, how are you doing in all of this? How, how's the fam? How are you? Well, I appreciate the question. And um, ironically, I'm about the same. Um, you know, with, with composers, it's interesting because I think I saw a meme going around where it showed a picture of a composer at a desk and it said, a composer working. And then it showed the exact same picture of the composer at the desk and it said, a composer working in quarantine. Because we're naturally by ourselves all the time. I think, I think my, my family, I've got a wife and two daughters, I think they're starting to go a little stir-crazy. Because they don't have the, you know, the deadlines and the structure and um, kind of, well, the work to keep them busy the way I do. Uh, we homeschool, but everything's sort of, all bets are off right now. Um, so I think they're, you know, they're dying to go out and do something. We'll just drive around in the car, you know, and, and look at stuff or maybe go grab a bite to eat through uh, a drive through and, and just eat in the car just for, for fun. But um, we're, we're good. We're isolated. Uh, we're in North Carolina. You're in Texas, which I love. That's great. We've got some, you know, I guess we can both say we're southern states. Texas is a lot more south than North Carolina. But um, we're on about 30 acres of, of woods, kind of surrounded by farmland. So we're kind of isolated anyway. That was an intentional choice that we made when we moved about three and a half years ago. Uh, of course, not knowing anything like this was going to happen, but... Um, yeah, we're sort of sitting with the the stocked up food, and I've got uh, one more TV show that's wrapping up for the season that I was working on when I missed the beginning of our interview when it was supposed to be, and um, 
and then some new stuff starting soon. So I'm actually, I'm kind of like wrapping up a fairly significant part of the year in the next day or so because TV is wrapping up and then it's back into video game world. Bad ass. And you know, you just mentioned that your homeschooling is there like a music composer class that you get to teach for homeschool. You know, it's funny because I said something like that to my wife 10 years ago when she suggested we do that um, when our kids were little. And I was like, oh, hey, I could totally do music. Yeah, that's one of those sounds like a great idea, but there's just not um, there's not time. Uh, I've there's just a lot of music to be written, Brian. It's like I, I'm I have to focus and get up in the morning, <laughs> eat breakfast, exercise, work, and then when dinner's ready, then I'm you know I'm off work, and then I can see everybody. But there's just not time for that. Although uh, my youngest has taken an inclination to music and she loves singing. She's got a great voice and she's got great pitch and she plays ukulele. And, um, I actually, uh, got her to sing on this soundtrack that I finished, uh, maybe a month and a half ago. She sang all the lead vocals and all of the sort of scary, whispery, um, like possessed demon child sound effects and things. Uh, and she did a fantastic job. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. That's awesome, Mike. Well, I can't wait to hear this. Uh, did you alter that, or did she did she have an understanding that these would be demonic whispers, or did you have to yeah, change it later? Uh, you know, that's a great question. Um, I didn't do a thing, Mark. It's like I said, um, I mean, she was singing. You know, she was just singing like an ooh or an ah, and she nailed that. But then I just said, can I just get you to do like some like creepy whispers? Like, um, so it's, it's for this game, uh, Supermassive Games. This is the second game in their dark pictures anthology and it's called little hope and uh this is all they've been doing a lot of press the last week or so so all of this is public knowledge and uh, there's a little girl that's kind of um a big part of the story which is why i wanted my daughter to sing so i said to her uh, mally just just pretend like you know you're a creepy um creepy little girl from like the 16 or 1700s and she just did this like and like made these crazy noises and completely freaked my wife out when i played it there's nothing scarier to her than creepy children and now her her 15 year old is the creepiest (laughs) (laughs) that is wonderful that is wonderful uh so let's let's get into it let's uh i want to know uh, where it all began for you in music, whether it be a song you heard on the radio, a record you first bought, or an instrument you picked up and took over, where did it all begin? Wow, that's a really open-ended question that I could probably spend 30 minutes answering. Let me, let me give you the brief, the brief version. I think, it, I think it started when I was young. I just liked listening to music music um my parents weren't like classical musicians or anything like that but my mom played piano and uh, played in the handbells at their church and my dad played like some guitar and played drums and a lot of that was done back when they were a little younger so they knew enough to be dangerous and for some reason i think because i knew that my mom played piano my dad played guitar my dad played drums that sort of seemed like a cool thing to me and um, I really liked listening to music, especially once I got into high school. So I started with piano lessons and drum lessons um, in middle school, not until like fifth fifth or sixth grade, really. And then 
from there, it just sort of took off. In high school, it got real serious, and I was teaching myself guitar and bass guitar and taking like vibraphone lessons and snare drum lessons and timpani lessons and singing lessons and just everything I could possibly get my hands on. I was in like all the bands in high school, all the choruses in high school, and then went and majored in music in college and was just, you know, playing, basically playing guitar, bass or drums in any band I could get my hands on and that basically let me in. And um, originally, though, I wanted to be an education major because that's who my high school band director, uh, he was kind of my influence to go into education he's just a super cool dude and we're still good friends i've done some some um vlogs on youtube under the name a drunk on music where we basically just drink and talk about music um he's just a super cool dude maybe 10 years older than i am but he's a trombone player he's got perfect pitch he's you know been teaching all of his life he's retired now but he kind of taught me everything i know about music um so I wanted to be an education major, but I couldn't hack the methods classes, which are the the classes where you know they put a trumpet in your hand and go, okay, you're going to learn to play this this semester. It just wasn't. Um, I never played a wind instrument before, and I realized that that sort of vibrating, like that kind of that you have to do, putting your lips together and getting it to vibrate. No, that was not. I mean, it was like within about 15 minutes of we were all just holding the mouthpiece blowing through it uh it was my first methods class my freshman year in college and i was so excited because i was going to be a band director and learn to play all these instruments and about 15 minutes in um i just i put up my hands and said i can i can i go to the bathroom because it was literally just driving me crazy (laughs) they were just practicing you know going into the mouthpiece and i went to the bathroom and i never came back to class Class was over, and then I went and got my book bag and literally went and changed my major to music education. I mean, to um, <laughs> from from music education to music composition. That um, was like the my career, you know, the fork in the road kind of thing. But um, I took uh, percussion lessons and piano lessons and guitar lessons and all that stuff in college, and I went to school at USC and. Los Angeles for film and TV and worked out there for a little bit. I was lucky and got to do a bunch of cool stuff, but it just wasn't really my thing. Um, I mean, I was doing film and TV stuff, kind of ghosting underneath another composer as well as writing my own TV stuff like in the mid nineties. So this is right when bad reality TV was on. I mean like the beginnings of like early to mid nineties, bad reality television um, scoring all kinds of shows like that, but getting credits, you know, getting royalties and things. And that was super cool, but it just wasn't like, it wasn't my gig. I didn't, I I don't mind working hard and it was a lot of hard work, but it was just, it felt like I was treading water. So, um, I'm from North Carolina and I moved back here. My wife was with me. We got married and moved to LA, bless her heart. So we were out there for a while after I graduated I said, this is ridiculous. I'm just, this is, I'm, it's not that I'm not even having fun. I'm miserable. I don't really like the people I'm working with. I don't like the way things are structured. I don't like the other composers I'm dealing with. I'm out of here. And I went home. And for about five years, like literally just started from scratch and was doing, you know, radio spots for politicians and 
scoring corporate commercials and recording local bands and doing anything and everything I could do just to work in audio, not necessarily writing music. And I, um, I was also writing music on the side, like for myself, but, uh, through all of that kind of networking, I started finding out about other companies that, you know, maybe did post for games or did advertising for games. And that was sort of my in to the world of games, which was in like 2000 or maybe 1999. And, um, when I first started scoring games, it was like I would do, you know, a 40 or 45 minute score in maybe a month or a month and a half, where in that same amount of time in Los Angeles, I would have spent on a single 30 second commercial for Honda or Toyota or the Air Force or something because they wanted literally hundreds of variations. So I went from writing 30 seconds of music 500 times in Los Angeles to writing 40 minutes of music in the same amount of time for games. And that was where I knew that advertising really wasn't my thing and games were sort of here to stay. I, I started just actively pursuing them, figuring out who all the players were and who the audio directors were on the other composers and you know what I could do to meet people and was going to the game developers conference. And it's been, um, yeah, it's been probably 20 years now since uh that first that first started and i'm just as enamored and in love with games as i was back then that is an excellent answer and i loved everything about that it it reminded me of myself that you know i started off in middle school band playing saxophone and clarinet you know doing some percussion stuff and then moving on towards that went to film uh school and journalism school in kansas and then doing reality TV shows right out of school. So that was like what I did as well. So it was kind of cool to hear it from somebody else. (laughs) Sounds very familiar, yes. Just not on the music aspect. And I guess there's like, you know, I I still love, you know, playing the instruments, even though I don't play in a band. And But, you know, there's always something like nostalgic that I feel for like those early jobs and, you know, just being in the thick of it uh, in the field type of thing. Do you ever get that? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's that's only because, you know, it was um I mean I how can you how can you put it? It's like it, when you're writing music, um, it's almost like you're bodybuilding. That's kind of the closest relationship that I can that I can think of. So it's sort of like looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, when he was Mr. Universe or whatever and saying, like, that's what I want to be. And, you know, you're this skinny beanpole 20-year-old kid. Now, by no means do I look anything um, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And musically, I am not the equivalent of Arnold Schwarzenegger now, but I'm sort of like half of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, musically speaking, compared to where I was 20 years ago. And what I remember 20 years ago is just like, well, how did they, how did they get that sound? What's that thing? What's with the scales? And I don't really get, because I was a drummer and a percussionist, and I always felt like that was a really big hindrance for for me. I know it slowed me down a lot until I started really studying on my own harmony and theory and, um, you know, kind of the the language of film music and and things like that. Where friends of mine who played saxophone, for example, or piano, um, or trumpet, you know, they had they had the scales down already. They knew the relationships and the harmonies. And I was literally starting from scratch, even 10 years into my music career with games, like 10 years ago, I still had so much to figure out. And I think it's one of those things, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. But I really didn't know anything 
at the beginning. I just didn't have that kind of an education, so I had to make up for it myself. Very cool. Well, you know, Steve Jablonski didn't start off wanting to be a composer. He was he wanted to be a sound engineer, and he worked under um, Harry Gregson Williams for um, a little while. And then in the evenings, he would, you know, start to create his own his own music and um, compositions, and slowly kind of learned the ropes. Um, who do you who did you learn from? Like you said, you have a mentor, but who was who early on was somebody helped you go from the percussion to melodies to kind of this half Arnold Schwarzenegger hybrid you mentioned. <laughs> well, I'd have to thank John Williams for that. I think uh, John Williams and Danny Elfman. No, not, no, no. Professionally. I wish personally. Um, I was, so I was this composition major in, in college and I kind of assumed for the first half of college that I would just do what my composition professor was doing, which was get a degree in composition and then go on and get my master's and then get my PhD and then teach composition at a college level. So I didn't need to worry about methods classes or anything like that. Um, but about my junior year, I think, was when Music for a Darkened Theater Part 1 or Volume 1 for Danny Elfman came out. And I wasn't listening to a lot of film music at the time, but that CD was really cool because it was one of the first ones that had lots of different pieces from lots of different films and Elfman's super quirky. So it was very inspirational going from, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure to Batman to Darkman or whatever else uh, was on that CD. And that kind of led me to Bernard Herrmann because I recognized something from Day the Earth Stood Still in Batman. And then at the same time, I got the John Williams Spielberg collaboration CD, I think it was, like with the um, San Francisco Orchestra or something. They recorded it at Skywalker. And it was, again, a selection of music from the original trilogy. So you've got all these different themes and things sort of spread, a crowd of, spread across over three movies condensed into a, a single CD. Between those C two CDs, it really convinced me that that's the kind of thing that I wanted to do. But I didn't know how to go about it. And at the time, they didn't even have these things called signature series or signature edition scores for John Williams, where literally 50 bucks or something like that, you get a score of, let's say, the main title from Superman or, you know, multiple themes from Star Wars. And it's the conductor score. It's literally the recipe for how he did the melodies and the harmonies and everything else. So that was a big eye-opener for me, studying those scores and just learning more about harmony and orchestration and how simple things can be, how simple things can sound when there's actually a lot of support and things going on around it. Um, especially between Elfman and Williams, they're sort of diametrical opposites, right? Like Elfman is very triadic and you know maybe he does a bunch of parallel minor chords throws in some major chords where williams is almost jazz it's just like every note in the scale is being played almost all the time and then all the other notes not in the scale come and go and uh studying those two guys kind of back to back was was a big thing for me amazing well when you have something in your head that you want to get out do you hum it do you run to a piano do you do you just start writing uh, music, you know, notes on paper? How, how do you get uh, something out and what makes the most sense to you? I used to uh, hum things into my phone when I, you know, when the iPhones first came out and I could do the voice recorder. 
uh, if I was driving around or walking around and had an idea, I could just hum it. And a lot of times even, um, let's see, when that was, I'm trying to think. I was working on this game called The Order 1886, and I was driving someplace like from the grocery store home, and I got just got a theme for some combat thing or something in my head. So I recorded it on the phone real quick. And I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure that's in D. And I was about 120 or whatever. And I sang it. And then I got home and worked on it. And sure enough, it was in D. And it was at 120. And everything kind of locked in. So I took the recording and dropped it in over the music where you could hear me humming like the theme as the, you know, as the cellos played it or, or something like that and sent it to the guys at Sony just for a joke because it kind of became a thing where it was, it was just fun to mentally transcribe stuff. And I would always forget it five minutes later. So by humming it, at least I could get a piece and, and remember it. And now um, it's a lot more condensed, uh, I'm not really constantly thinking like, okay, that, that combat theme. Now I got to go run and buy some, you know, we have lots of animals here, so I got to go get some greens for the bearded dragon. But when I get back home, that combat theme, how could that go? My, my brain doesn't really work that way now. Now it's more like I sit down in front of the computer and I have a piano sound up and think, okay, now what does this need to be? What's the tempo? And I kind of do it on the spot. It's a lot less reaching and trying to grab these tidbits floating around in my head and it's a lot more like okay time to work i'm sitting what does this need to sound like go but i think that just comes from time right you know since i'm the half arnold schwarzenegger in a musical form i've put in the enough hours where i can kind of call it up and put it away the muse almost on demand and um, it's a lot easier to walk away from stuff at the end of the day I remember it used to be like oh but I'm almost finished I've only got 30 seconds left and you've got it all in your head and you you know if you don't put it in there it's going to be gone then you have to do something different the next morning now I just look and go oh look it's five o'clock okay and I shut everything down and then I just pick up the next morning when I get back in it's a lot less stress I think just from from experience you know how many are thousands of tens of thousands of hours anyone who has been composing for their whole life, you know, professionally. Um, it just, I think it just happens, especially, and I'm a lot closer to 50 than I am to 30 now. So it just happens. Well, it almost like to me, and probably Brian would be the same, even though he's played a little more music than me. It, I, I kind of asked if you hummed something as a joke, because to me, the way you get from something in your head to uh, tapping on something to a CD or a record, it just seems like alchemy to me. And I'm just wondering how you could go from, <laughs> like you said, that was in that, that tune that you hummed, that was in D. And then you find out and break down those notes and see what works, what doesn't, and elaborate. It all just seems like it, it's so nebulous to me. So hearing you describe it gives me confidence, even though I'll probably never be a composer. But I do love and respect your, your craft. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I think there's something um, it's I don't know if you, your inner ear would be the right way to phrase it, because that to me sounds more like a, a pitch thing. Uh, but your inner voice, like your inner musical voice. Um, I don't mean the way you sound when you write music, but I mean the, the little thing in your head, like when you're reading a book to yourself, you're hearing those words in your head. Right. It's the same way with with music. Uh, if I sit down and I'm starting something and think, okay, well, 
this needs to be an exploration track or, or whatever. I immediately start hearing something that may be good or bad that I may want to use or, or not use, but I just start kind of feeling my way around the piano until I can plunk out what I'm hearing in my head. And I know when I'm tired because there's no, there's no inner voice. I don't hear anything. And, and then everything that I try to come up with just sounds awful. Um, so that's, that's why I'm very focused with my work from kind of like eight or nine in the morning to, uh, to five or six in the evening, because then I have the rest of the evening off to spend time with my family and relax, get a good night's sleep, you know, don't work on the weekends. I know a lot of composers that can't write a lick until two in the afternoon and they'll work until four in the morning. And maybe I'm just too old for that now, but uh, I, I never, I never worked that way. I've always been very rigid and structured in the way I do things. And I think that's what helps me, especially now, just turn it on and turn it off. Okay, time to go. Okay, time to stop. And then I can get away from it and kind of get a break. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, I can see how having a family kind of, you know, gives you more of a regimented um, schedule. But um, does it help you living out in uh, the country where they filmed uh, Quiet Place? Just kidding. But... Getting away from like the grind of LA and, you know, like Hans Zimmer calls it musician's hours. I work from nine to five, nine in the evening till five in the morning. So, but. right, right. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And I, it's not that I don't enjoy hanging out, especially with my fellow composers. So many of them are such great people. And I feel really lucky to call a lot of them friends. Um, but I'm, it's like I'm kind of a, a closet introvert. Uh, I really love going to conventions and meeting people. And I love giving talks and presentations. I, I, I did stage work when I was little. I mean, like when I was like five or six, I was doing, you know, Christmas Carol as Tiny Tim. And I was doing musicals and acting. So I've never really been one to have an issue with stage fright or anything. But if, if I'm not up on stage with a whole bunch of people, I'd rather it be one-on-one. So I get a little a little tired in, in groups. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm not in Los Angeles or, or New York where all these other people are. I kind of respect my, my personal time. And, um, I love seeing other folks or talking to them or Skyping with them or chatting on the phone, but I like it to be one-on-one. It seems a lot more, you know, focused and, um, quality above quantity i mean even at gdc when there's thousands of people there i'm always finding one person or i've already scheduled something with individuals to have lunch or to just stand in the corner and talk one-on-one or maybe two or three folks but you know the big party thing the big social thing has never really been my bag all right all right uh you piqued my interest you know you you say you have a lot of um composer friends and whatnot and so we've you know we've seen and heard over the many many years of um you know filmmakers or actors or you know rock stars or whatnot that have like just gotten together to party and jam at each other's houses is that the same way with composers do you and your friends that are uh composers as well kind of like get together and like just kind of like make music together or talk about it is there like a club (laughs) well i know we'll uh we get together especially at conferences when there's everyone's kind of around we'll definitely meet up at a bar someplace and just just talk and and catch up and um 
reminisce and you know connect and see how everyone's doing and maybe talk about some technology and uh how how everyone's families are it's it's pretty pretty boring by all um by all counts i think it's you know it's just we're not really being composers we're kind of just being people just um, being, yeah but you know yeah just just being being humans and i think that's actually one of the more important kinds of relationships to establish with uh, not only your fellow uh, composers or comrades in arms, but with all the people that you're working with. I always try to not intentionally, just on a kind of a personal uh, need for connecting. I always try to make that personal connection with, you know, an audio director or a creative director or whoever it is that uh, maybe I'm meeting at a conference or talking to on the phone or Skyping with. Cause it's always nice to know a little bit about folks personally. Um, since we sort of all have the lowest common denominators in, in common. Um, and then, yeah, we'll talk about music, but it's almost kind of a, an afterthought sometimes. Okay. I like that. I had no idea if there was like any, like, big like if you're at this conference there's like any creativity of like oh we're working on this come aboard or we're gonna do this i had no idea (laughs) (laughs) so dreary the life of a composer (laughs) (laughs) well i i'm so you're you're you have an impressive list uh of work you have under your belt and you know a few things that i've seen you know, such as Project Blue Book, Swamp Thing, uh, and the revamps of Hawaii oh, nice. Five-O and Magnum P.I. You know, all these things that I've enjoyed and watched, and especially the music. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you came aboard some of these projects? And, you know, even with stuff like Swamp Thing or the revamps of Hawaii and Magnum, you probably were fans or probably were a fan of the originals. Is it just like a dream come true? And how do you bring your, uh, your self into these, uh, this music? I'm just so curious about that. Well, that's a great question, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, uh, so I've got an amazing agent, first of all. Um, I work with Cheryl Tiano at Gorfin Schwartz. They're in Los Angeles. And um, she approached me going on 13 years ago now, I think, um, after this game I did came out called Dead Space, which got a lot of attention for the game and for the music, which really surprised me because the music was so completely horrible. I figured no one would want to listen to it. But it turns out since it was for a scary game... No, well, since it was for a scary game, people loved it because it was so awful. You know, it was so just like, you know what exactly put it on to relax. You know, it's not like um, Animal Crossing or something. (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah. Um, But she's been my agent for a long time now. And um, a lot of people operate under the, the wrong conclusion, I think, that agents, their job is to get you work. Um, that's more of a of a manager kind of thing, and she's definitely not my manager. Um, but one of her jobs is to support all of her composers. So um, if I was incredibly busy and had another job come in, um, well, honestly, in reality, I would say, I'm sorry I'm too busy. Can you wait a month? I've never really hired anybody um, as an assistant or anything. But again, 
that's more of an LA, you know, get a work on a lot of projects and get other people to help you kind of mentality. And I'm more of a, just do it, just do it myself mentality. But if I did need help, I would call Cheryl and she would find someone who was brilliant, who would help me with whatever it is I needed help with. And it just turns out that uh, she has some other composers that needed the same kind of thing. Daniel Wall is the lead composer for Project Blue Book for seasons one and two. And she contacted me, Cheryl did, because uh, it was Daniel's first TV show. And he just wondered if there was someone who could kind of help him with some of the heavy lifting. A TV show, it's, it's a pretty demanding schedule. Um, most of the time they're posting a show every seven to ten days, which means all the music needs to be written in that time. And for one person to do 20, 30, 35 minutes of music in that short span of time is a fairly Herculean effort, to say the least. So I helped Daniel with season one, and then we continued forward with season two. I imagine we'll probably do the same thing with season three. And he's just a super great guy. He's in Los Angeles, and we talked a lot, and um, it was kind of eye-opening for me that was the first tv show i'd done since like 1995 so it was sort of amazing when i got the first episode and it looked so good like it didn't look like um a, a game cinematic or gameplay that's always just bad when you're working on it before it's even in the alpha period for a game because nothing's been rendered and there's no lighting and you know the characters are usually I'm sure you guys are familiar like the kind of default avatar where they're standing with their arms straight out and their legs kind of like they're halfway in the middle of a jumping jack yep. and they just sort of spin unnaturally and slide across like the X or Y axis and, and then they'll have the computer voice that says all of the dialogue like a robot <laughs> that's most of what I get for video games so they're like oh be inspired like this is the big part where the hero you know loses his love and the villain is trying triumphant at the end of act two or, or whatever and you know no my darling don't die it's um you know it's hard to you got to close your eyes and use your imagination a lot in games and here it was this gorgeous you said you've seen project blue book just the production value i love the 50s and it looks so cool and the sound effects are so great and none of the effects were finished the visual effects but you got the idea of what they were doing with the show and it was really really neat um so what happened from that is uh i guess daniel you know daniel and i hit it off and and did a great job and he works with cheryl and then keith power is another fantastic composer that also works with cheryl and within about a span of I don't know six weeks of daniel contacting cheryl keith contacted cheryl and said I'm doing three shows right now, and now they're starting a reboot of Magnum. So I'm going to have four shows, which is something just crazy, like 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 120 minutes of music a week that he needs to produce between all four of these shows. So he was looking for another composer to bring on for Magnum PI to help out with that. And Cheryl said, "Oh well, hey, Jason, you know, is doing TV with this other guy. Let me talk to him and see if he would be interested in helping you with Magnum." And he, of course, was also super nice and uh, just so down to earth and friendly. And we've got lots in common, like musically and personally. And um, I was like, yeah, I'd love to do Magnum. That would be super great. He's like, OK, cool. Uh, first episode, 
you know, we'll be ready in a couple of weeks. I said, cool. And then about three days later, I got an email from the, like the, um, like music editor on Hawaii Five-0 that says, uh, Hey Jason, I'm working on Hawaii Five-0, which is another one of Keith's shows. He said that you were going to do Magnum. Do you think maybe you could help us out? Uh, we've got this one episode. It's due in like three days. Could, could you do a couple of scenes for us? And I was kind of like, um, Sure. I'd love to. And, you know, I hadn't seen Magnum because it was a reboot, right? I, I watched the pilot once Keith sort of brought me into the fold. He sent it to me. But I, I watched the first probably six years of Hawaii Five-0, the first six seasons. And then it just sort of fell off my radar. But um, that was super cool because, like, the very first scene I was doing had, like, all the stars in it. And it was this big, cool action scene with them talking. And I'm like, this is so cool. It's like the TV that I used to to watch and think man i wish i could do some music like that and here i am doing music like that so you know i sort of pop in and out on hawaii 50 as needed and then um do maybe a third of the music uh on on magnum uh depending on the episode sometimes it's less sometimes it's it's a little bit more but like i said this is very detailed like hollywood style everything going on super slick production just music from beginning to end, you know, 35, 36 minutes of music a week. So that's why there's two or three people on each one of these shows um, bringing it all together. Um, then, see, this is really good because you asked me one question and I talked for like 40 minutes. Um, I love it. <laughs> but that's, that's two-thirds, right? That's two-thirds of the answer. So I did, a, I did a season of Blue Book and I did a season of Magnum. And it was, Blue Book was, by comparison, fairly easy. Because you've seen the show, but for those who haven't, it's a very kind of pad, textural, um, um, like, kind of landscapey sort of score. There's not a lot of fast action music or anything like that. It's more about the atmosphere. And Hawaii Five-0 and Magnum P.I. are the exact opposite. They're very detailed Lots of I mean, the queue I was writing when we first started our Skype was a Magnum queue, and I was at the end, and it was at 175 beats per minute. That's really fast, and it's just just super. Lots of notes, um, lots of detail, and lots of layers. So it goes a little a little slower, and it was a learning curve for me trying to figure out how to score. You know every five seconds something changing on the screen and you're literally changing the band out it's like you'll have this synth sound and a cool bass sound and like some strings doing something and some neat drums and then seven seconds later you dump all that and you pick something new and you're in a new tempo with a new key it just it it flies so fast but i'd learned uh i i feel like i'd learned a lot on the first season of magnum and I remember Cheryl saying, oh, hey, I talked to Keith and he just he loves what you're doing and says you're doing a great job. And it's just good to know that you can you can do TV. I mean, that's like the hardest TV there is. And if you can do that, you can do anything. So it's good to know that you're available for TV. And I kind of laughed. I said, look, I I get it. I'm not in Los Angeles for a reason. And I can't go to the spotting session. That's where the composer goes to the studio or maybe the director comes to the composer's house. Usually the composer goes to the studio and they watch the show together, figure out where the music should be and what the music should sound like. And if the composer isn't in Los Angeles, they can't really go to the spotting session. I'm not really envisioning them, you know, Skyping 
with someone in North Carolina. And I told Cheryl that I said, I know I'm not going to be like the, the lead guy. And honestly, I don't want to be, that's just, that's just a lot of responsibility. So I appreciate you saying that I can quote unquote work on TV now, but I know the reality of kind of how it works. Um, and then about two months later, I was having lunch with her uh, in San Francisco, and she's like, hey, so uh, Brian Tyler is doing this Swamp Thing TV show, and he just had a film schedule bump, basically, and he's only going to have time to do the first episode. He was wondering if you would do the other nine. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, um... Swamp Thing, like that super cheesy, you know, 80s movie that I watched a thousand times. Uh, is it going to be a serious thing? Or she's like, oh, yeah, it's very serious. It's very, very dark and very horror. And I started saying, oh, OK, I, I understand why maybe Brian was thinking I might be able to to help him. Um, and he did the pilot and uh, we talked a bunch. And then I did the like the second and third episode and sent all the cues by him. Uh, which he mostly gave hysterical comments um, and occasionally would just say like, oh, hey, add this right here. But a lot of it was like, OMG, exclamation point, that jump scare totally got me and I knew it was coming, exclamation point, exclamation point, great job. Like super energetic, super positive, just amazingly upbeat and, and happy guy, especially when we're talking about all this, you know, kind of scary, scary music. But um, everything... Thing that I talked about with like Magnum or Hawaii Five O, I was doing you know 10, 11 minutes. I mean, sometimes it'd be like four or five minutes in a, in a week. And Swamp Thing was like 35, 38, 39 minutes a week for for nine episodes. And I remember saying to Brian, um, you know, you're you're the composer. I mean, your name's on the contract, and I'm happy to help. Who else is doing this besides me? He's like, just you. Is that cool? I'm like, um, absolutely. It is so cool. So I really like buckled down and had, I mean, I got Alan, my, my best friend who was my band director. I set him up with like a Google doc to do all of these household things. I mean, stuff like, you know, getting the, getting the lawn trimmed and figuring out what to do about the trash. Cause we're in the middle of nowhere, like getting some sort of a little mini dumpster hooked up and making sure the plumber got called. He basically became me for anything that didn't have to do with music because I knew for at least two months I was going to be doing literally nothing but sleeping, writing music and eating. And, and that was it. And it was, um, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. I even got the flu, like in the middle of episode seven. Um, I was sitting here just sick as a dog with my ears all stopped up, you know, working. I usually work like 4.30 or 5 in the morning until like maybe 6 at night. So I'd do a 11, a 10 or, I mean, um, a 13, yeah, 4.30 to 6. A 13 or 14 hour day, uh, Monday through Friday. And they were... They were really happy. I, I was happy with the, the final version and was like, this isn't that bad. After the first episode, I'm like, I did it. Woo-hoo, I did it. And I had the weekend and I started on Monday and I'm like, I can totally do this. I can totally do this. But by about the fourth or fifth show, I was like, I can totally do this. And it just started, it started wearing me down. It, it's not the, you know, 37 minutes of music a week that's hard. It's doing it week after week after week. 
that really starts getting to you, which I think is why I got the flu. I just got tired and I got sick. Um, but again, you know, learned, learned a lot. And fast forward a year and now I've finished another season of Magnum with Keith. Um, literally, I'm working on the season finale, like just before we talked. If, if you ever watch the show, if there's any combat, that's me. <laughs> he gives me all the action. Uh, if there's any sort of a standoff with the bad guy, like the ends of the axe where it has the big build that goes up to things. Now, of course, I'm not doing all of the combat. Sometimes... Uh, someone else is doing it besides myself. But most of my cues are chase, combat, action cues. And I think it's just because I did so much of it for games, all that action music, that it just kind of comes second nature now. So that was that was my uh, intro to TV. Um, and honestly, I wanted to do it the same reason I do trailers and, and library music. Uh, games crazy with their schedules and... Um, you know, you could sneeze and something gets bumped by six months and suddenly all the work that you were planning on doing for the next six months, there's no more work. It's coming. It's just not coming yet. And then you're kind of in a panic looking around trying to figure out what else to do. So I figured I'd rather have lots of pans in the fire and, you know, be spinning a lot of plates and trying to keep up with deadlines from a trailer or a TV show or a game than twiddling my thumbs because a deadline got pushed because they always get pushed in games. They always get pushed whenever anyone even mentions like, well, we might be doing it like a couple of months later. It's like, okay, yeah. So that's what's going to happen because it's always nice to have that extra time in, in games. You know, if the publisher gives them a little bit of extra allowance and they can polish it a little bit more, why wouldn't they want to do that? Right, right. I, that's uh, I've come to know being a gamer for so long on pretty much all systems. I've come to see that a, a lot of things get pushed back quite a bit. Oh yeah, my goodness, my goodness, and and with with the video games. So I'm I'm gonna read a list of video games that I've played heavily you named one of them dead space because i've played dead space one and two and my goodness the music in that is great the game's great i love dead space uh but you also did until nice. until dawn tomb raider call of duty black ops and the friday the 13th game which i think one of the first times that i ever downloaded kind of like a soundtrack to my itunes was friday the 13th the game <laughs> That game was so fun. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just like listen to that, and I just know that, you know, everything from like the opening of that game when you get into a map and Jason comes in till, into like the actual gameplay and everything, and even if you go into the 80s, Jason, I mean, just the music in that Friday the 13th game is unbelievably good. And I remember, you know, when that 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 game came out and you know how that company and those people who were developing it when they first brought it out and to you know how they tried to fix it at the very beginning when it was released and stuff like that but i still play it i absolutely still play friday the 13th it is so much fun but can you talk a little bit about getting into a franchise such as friday the 13th as well as something as big as tomb raider call of duty and even i know you've done some star trek stuff so you probably have like i don't know if you got to go into the archives or research and all of this stuff but that just seems super badass and cool to me well it is it is super cool for sure uh any of those franchises when you're 
kind of given the keys to the city, musically speaking. It's uh, it's it's simultaneously super cool and utterly terrifying because, of course, what you don't want to do is mess up. And if you do mess up, you only have yourself to blame. Um, but it, so in the interest of time, I can do some short answers because they all are a little different, which I think is interesting. Um, let me I'm going to go down the list and you tell me what I've missed. So Tomb Raider. They had done some research beforehand and literally just called me up and said, what's up? You want to work on our game? And it was like, uh, yeah. And that kind of took off from there. Um, I was just honored and uh, just really touched that they thought I would be the guy. So uh, I was the guy. And that was that was super cool. Um, the Star Trek stuff was earlier in my career and that was through heavy pitching which is the composer word for basically writing pieces of music uh, little short ideas and sending them to the developer in hopes that they will like your music because sometimes two or three or in bad scenarios nine or ten other people are doing the same thing we call that uh, pitching where they just say hey what would Star Trek music sound like if you did it for us and you do you know a main theme or a combat piece or whatever it is they're asking for so there was a lot of pitching involved for that um and uh in the end they they picked my music and it was sort of this okay well we want you to do this star trek game and then this one and then this one and then this one too and then this one over here so it kind of was a a cool thing because the the one game turned into many uh that was completely you know just throwing music over the wall and they ended up liking mine uh friday the 13th i knew the publisher uh gun i think is the name of the publisher and um i'd worked on some other games with them and let's face it it's a scary it's a scary game uh obviously scary music and uh harry manfredi manfredi i'm not exactly sure how to pronounce your name harry i'm sorry but um harry scored the game i mean he's a brilliant composer um just obviously didn't need help writing music for Friday the 13th. He'd done it so many different times, but where he was having a little bit of an issue was the interactive idea of his music. Cause obviously he had always done linear for film. So the publisher brought me on in the beginning just to do what I could, you know, just via phone calls. He's like, Oh, let's fly you out to LA and you two can sit down. And I said, ah, you don't need to, you don't need to do that as much as I'd love to fly to LA and hang out with Harry for a day. We can just talk on the phone and see what we can get done. And, um, so it was a lot of talk about interactive music and we could talk about it like composers, you know, I, we didn't need to speak in layman's terms. And then there were certain aspects where you could maybe you could play as Jason or you could play as a counselor or maybe you're playing as Jason and they'd have kind of two different mm, levels of music and they needed to be able to work together, but also work on their own and that's kind of those abstract musical building blocks that seem so straightforward to me now after doing especially scary music on an interactive basis for so long harry just couldn't couldn't wrap his head around how it was going to work because he hadn't even heard it in the game yet because he hadn't written it yet because he didn't know how it was going to sound in the game right it was this like catch-22 so they had me sort of doing additional music so when there was a lot of that heavily interactive kind of stuff i just sort of wrote it in the spirit of harry's music which was 
super cool and and a real honor and just like just fun right it was just fun to to do that and to to be a part of that did i did i catch all the games that might have been all of them yeah i think you caught all of those and that was uh that that was pretty great Woohoo! you know working with uh brian tyler uh i imagine that's got to be cool because brian and i are fans i've talked to him three or four times um but I asked him a long time ago, I said, what's tougher, scoring film or scoring video games? And without missing a beat, he goes, oh, scoring a video game, because you have to write so much more music and you have to write for all the eventualities that a player may encounter in the game. Um, I was listening to your score for Man of Madame, if, if I'm saying that right, um, from the Dark Pictures Anthology. Um, and there's only about 46 minutes of music. So is there more that we didn't hear or are there things that don't like make it to an album are there i mean quantitatively how much do you think you have to write in any given game you know that's such a great question and it's so hard to answer because well for, for two reasons and let me tell you what they are number one uh every game is different and the way they they put the music together in the game is different so uh for tomb raider for example um i know uh, alex wilmer who was at Crystal Dynamics at the time and implemented all of my music. I think I wrote about three and a half hours of music and he said that he easily took that and basically made like a 12 or 13 hour score just as far as what plays in game. But see, what plays in game isn't necessarily the best soundtrack experience. Now, I, I get it. If like you're a fan and you can have 12 and a half hours of Tomb Raider music and you're going to love it, then that's great. But, you know, a lot of that stuff is probably probably going to be like a little bit of light percussion with some flute playing every 10 or 20 seconds. It's not exactly a musically defining track. Not something I would want to have on the the soundtrack. Um, I know with Until Dawn, I think uh, I wrote, quote unquote, 60 minutes of music because what was in the contract, but it was so much more granular in terms of the number of sounds that I individually delivered than Tomb Raider. I mean, like two or three times more. Um, Barney Pratt, who's the audio director at Supermassive, and for Until Dawn implemented all of that himself, it was crazy, like 18 hours or or something, because you've, you said you've played Until Dawn, all the branching and all the story possibilities and everything else, they're all individually scored, so a lot of times he's even taking things that I won't say weren't meant to be together, but things from different pieces that we set up so that you could cross-pollinate really easily. So he'll take one sound from one piece and another sound from another piece and stick them on top of each other, and it ends up being perfect for some other part of the game. Um, same thing with Man and Medan. Uh, the soundtrack is you know, a reasonable listening experience <laughs> from, from what I, I edit myself. Um, because I couldn't possibly physically go through and listen to all the the mixes and everything that play in the game because literally the game puts those together in real time um you know if you play the same part of the game five times in a row you're going to always have a, a slightly different version of the music because it's going to start in a different place and something might fade in a little differently or it might trigger a different stinger that's the beauty and the hardest part about games is all of that interactive kind of strategy going on under the hood with the music. So when it comes time to do a soundtrack, 
it's both a blessing and a curse because I love going back and listening to all the old music that I sent, but a lot of it I just don't even remember. And it's kind of like, you know, there'll be 30 tracks. And if you play all of them at the same time, it kind of sounds like, um, it's like if you had a band with, uh, let's say, you know, a sax player, a trumpet player, a trombone player, three guitarists, a keyboard player, a synth player, a drummer, and and uh, like a singer with background vocals, right? Like a big 15-piece band. Imagine if all of them took a solo at the same time for two minutes. That's what, that's what <laughs> this sounds like, right? If you play all of these tracks at the same time, because they're not meant to do that. They're not, they're not all supposed to be playing. Really, you're supposed to be playing maybe 25%. At any one point in time, a lot of times it's it's variations of the same thing. So I'll have the low strings doing three or four different variations for the same piece. But if you play them all together, it just sounds like mud. So I need to go in and kind of strip things down and carve. It's like being a sculptor with a giant piece of marble and trying to carve some sort of a statue out of it. It's really the more important thing is everything that I'm taking away. And um, I usually just try to make it sound like you're playing the game and i have lots of playthrough see i just did this with little hope that's why i can speak with it sort of with a, f a fresh mind so i got a playthrough of the entire game with just the music and all the little bullet points like the 90 different areas of where little check marks and checkpoints were and everything and i knew what music was playing where so i could sort of carve my deliveries uh, instead of having that massive marble block of everyone playing choose what to mute and what to turn off um, a lot of times with these games we just do one minute cues because there's so many things going on in that one minute and I easily, I easily took a 60 second cue and made it 8 minutes and it doesn't sound like the same thing playing every 60 seconds it's, it's consistently changing and moving and constantly um, kind of pulling you forward, which is what its goal ultimately was. I feel like I get a little better at editing soundtracks uh, the the more I do it, but it's definitely, I think I spent a week on Little Hope, and that was just editing the actual pieces. That's not even mixing them and then trying to master them and you know get track names and track order and balancing everything. It it takes some doing, but I love doing it because uh, in the end, since I'm the one that wrote the music, uh, it's it's always nice to kind of have my fingerprints on it last, if if that makes sense. Well, sonically, yes, but do you also get to put your fingerprints on it at the end by coming up with some really clever names for uh, your tracks? One's called I See Dead People and spelled I-S-E-A. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, you know, we're going to need a bigger boat as a little nod yeah. to Jaws. Yeah, because I know um, Michael Giacchino I does that just, too. He I has just a lot love of fun. puns. Um, um, well, I love I love say hello to my little friends from Dead Space Two because <laughs> that's the track where you're fighting the the babies, the mutant babies that are attacking yes. you. Um, uh, I mean, just fun things like um, you know, War in Pieces uh, from Dead Space, Rest in Pieces from Dead Space. The Dead Space tracks were really fun. I think the music was so overwhelmingly horrible that I needed to find some humor somewhere. Um, and some of them are even anagrams. Like I think you've got you've got nil. Was that it? It's an anagram for um, not necromorph. It's an anagram for something. Uh, you know, I would be a lot better prepared if I had the tracks in front of me. Awesome, awesome Hulk. 
um, the ones that are weird, that they, they don't make any sense, like it's not nice rig if you can get it, that's obviously a takeoff on nice work if you can get it. But the ones that are just kind of weird, like Awesome Hulk, they're an anagrams of, of other things, like Necromorph or Isaac and Nicole or anything like that. Um, habeas Corpuses, um, Habeas Corpses, I mean. That was a fun one, too. Yeah, it, nice. you just... You know, it's just it's just fun. <laughs> I like that. I, I I never even thought about that, but that's cool that you got those little kind of like those little stingers, those little uh, liner notes, those inside jokes in there. That's that's badass. Yeah, some some fun Easter eggs. Right. Um, and I, so with the composing world and composers, I do believe that composers really have so much talent uh, in that not only creating music and stuff to go along with something visual, but also they, uh, like yourself, are able to come up with a theme and a sense of different styles of music, such as adventure, horror, something like Hawaii Five-0, something real slow and haunting, then something really fast and pumping in action. And I always thought that was just uh, extraordinary, extraordinary, and very something that requires a lot of talent. And, you know, one of my favorite musicians is Frank Zappa. And oddly enough, his only Grammy he ever won was his classical album uh, that he did. Right. And I'm just curious on your take on, you know, being able to come up with different styles of music on a whim. And even, as you say, you're kind of like a jack of all trades, juggling different shows at a uh, at the same time, or working on video games, and you're constantly having, okay, my mind is this way now, my mind is this way now. What, what, how do you, can you describe that process? Well, it's interesting that you say jack of all trades because the second half of that uh, colloquialism is master of none, and I really do kind of. <laughs> I feel like that works well for me with with music. It's like oh, I can do a little bit of everything, you know. But I'm not like I'm not the guy that's going to get called to like throw down a hip hop track. I can put together a hip hop track, especially with uh, with Magnum. We do a lot of stuff with hip hop kinds of elements. But um, you know, there's definitely areas of music where I feel more comfortable. Um, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't love to do a hip hop soundtrack or something. It would just be a matter of uh, diving in, which honestly is my favorite thing to do. Just dive in for a week or two and learn new things, new sounds, new production, uh, kind of uh, production secrets and how instruments are recorded. And that really, that really began when I built my studio. Um, it was uh, 2011, I think. And Tomb Raider was the first thing that came out of that new studio but i recorded so much live material there it was um it's just basically me being a big nerd and wanting to learn new things is is what it comes down to i've discovered that like my my favorite thing to do is to learn new things um as far as my job is concerned so i'm always looking if there's a new job a new game a new tv show um I'm always trying to figure out what can I do 
that's new for me that will allow me to um, put another feather in my cap and learn some new stuff about either you know, playing a new instrument or using a new microphone technique or maybe using um, serum. Like I just started diving into really diving into serum, which is this very cool software instrument uh, synthesizer that uh, everyone in kind of pop and, and R&B and, and hip hop and everything have been using it forever but I just never really had the chance. It has a very distinct kind of cutting sound. So I've been having a lot of fun watching tutorials and learning how it, how it works and what I can do with it and applying that to this, uh, this new game that I started on maybe a week ago. Uh, it's all about the new. And of course, I want to do what's appropriate for the project. So I'm not going to be... Well, I did play ukulele on Magnum PI a little bit for, for, the, correct, for the correct cue, but I'm not doing, you know, like harmonica and and, uh, and kazoo because I think that's new and cool. Um, it needs to be appropriate and also be something I can learn more about. That's why I have way too many microphones and way too many instruments just sitting everywhere because I, I love getting up out of the seat and, and moving around and playing with guitar pedals or fiddling with keyboards or picking up a bass guitar or uh, you know playing actual drums into actual microphone um, I play all the time as, as much as I can and it's one of those things you know the more you the more you play the more comfortable you get and you don't have to edit all the time and you know you're going for like natural musical performances as opposed to all the like super robotic kind of on the grid like machine like kinds of sounds I've, I've always been more of a proponent of natural performances I think which is why I love learning new things um you know technology should be something we use as a tool and not something we have as as a crutch i'm not going to use canned drums and make them perfectly aligned in the computer to sound like a drum machine when i can play real drums and you know play with some feel and some groove and kind of get it feeling like a real drummer because gosh it, it is a real drummer or a real guitarist or a real uh, hammered dulcimer player or, or accordion or ukulele or whatever i can get my hands on i like it to i feel like imperfection speaks to the soul as as far as humans go you know that, that um that sort of musical imperfection really has its place, uh, at least in the music that, that I work on. And there's other things where it's great to be perfect and uh, on the grid and very mechanical and, and robotic uh, for certain styles of music. And I do that, too. I just really like banging on things is what it comes <laughs> down to. So it's like... What else can I bang on? I literally have a box in my hallway. I, I got a chromatic mountain dulcimer yesterday, which is this like kind of three-string guitar you put in your lap, and you can play all this crazy stuff with it. And I'm going to use it for this this new game that's starting up in a couple of weeks, but I've never played one, never even held one before, and I can't wait to figure out how it works and then basically abuse it and play it in all the wrong ways. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love that. And I imagine most composers houses and their homes are just uh just have uh an insane amount of really cool instruments or something that they could make music on you know like somebody like me who has two acoustic guitars a clarinet and add a didgeridoo at the house nice <laughs> it's nice. just 
Uh, it's, it's definitely interesting. And I'm sure like just you describing just so many instruments you like to go and play and you just got this new one. That's, uh, I like that. I just, you're constantly around something you love your toys or so yeah, to say. It, it's, it's inspirational too. You know, it, um, I might not be, I know for a fact that I am not a good string player. Um, but I have two violins, a viola, a cello, and a, a contrabass, and um, I play them all the time, especially for effects and scary kinds of things. Um, I, I can bang on them, and I can I can bow, you know, bigga digga digga digga, kind of make it in time, just like I can play rhythm guitar in time, since I'm so used to playing in time as a drummer. But uh, it's not a beautiful. A sumptuous musical performance. It's a very um, crunchy, nasty, kind of loud, um, wild kind of sound. But it's not something that you can get from playing things on the computer that other people have recorded for you. It's very much an original sort of thing. And that's sort of the, like the icing on the cake. That's the added benefit of doing stuff yourself. No one else has that sound. Um, or the, at least the way that I can abuse strings. No one else can abuse them quite the same way. <laughs> <laughs> like how you put that. You know, I, I have a question. Going back to um, the uh, Dark Pictures anthology, um, you know, I, I listen to your music, and it, it's got kind of a whimsical quality, kind of makes you feel like you're on a journey. There's some heroic bits. So how do you approach putting in some, if it's not an actual heroic scene where the... Um, you know, lead character, whoever the, the gamer you're playing as, um, does something heroic. How, how do you try to put something positive in something that's supposed to be otherwise dour and uh, dreary? Uh, that's a great question. And a lot of times that's coming, in the case of Dark Pictures, that's coming directly from Barney, Barney Pratt, who's the audio director. Uh, we would we would watch the game together uh you know, maybe a scene at a time or a 15-section piece of gameplay at a time and sort of break down, um, in the case of Man of Medan, which I'm assuming is what you're talking about, it would be like them getting on the boat, let's say. They're, they're all meeting each other for the first time, uh, and some of them know each other, some of them don't know each other, and they're all getting on the boat, and it's gorgeous outside, and the sun is setting, and there's no... There's nothing scary yet, but you don't want to be too heroic about it, but you also don't want to be too dark, but you don't want to be too busy because some of the stuff takes place over a five or 10 minute period. So that's actually one of the places where I think it was the youth theme is what we called it. I did maybe three versions of that. Um, and every version I did before we'd talk and then I'd send the music and Barney would go great. And then you put it in the game and he'd come back and go, Oh, it's just, it's almost calling too much attention to itself. I think we need something that's, you know, a little more understated. And we just sort of kept stripping it down more and more. Um, and it still had the, like, the harmony. And the movement was kind of heroic and adventurous. But it had less kind of on the top. It's like the meat and potatoes were still there. But there was less ornamentation you know, there was less happening to kind of distract you from the dialogue. And it's amazing how, you know, even just some just real quiet pads with strings and maybe some French horns just swelling over time, you know, almost not repetitive in a bad way, but like the waves or the tide 
kind of in a just almost hypnotic kind of repetition. That's what we ended up using a lot. And that, that whole score, I'm sure you didn't realize this, Mark, but that whole score is written in three. It's in three, four, or, or maybe like 12, eight um, or nine, eight. Because uh, I love the idea of that kind of triplet, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, sort of feeling like the waves or the tide. So I intentionally usually stay away from that because I'm afraid I'm going to write just like lame pirate music. So, but for this game, <laughs> I thought, okay, I'm going to conquer my fear. That was what I learned on Man and Madame was how to write in three without hopefully sounding like lame pirate music. And, and more to that point, like the the amount of thought that goes into something or, you know, you have this psychology, you know, to, to a layman or someone who's just listening to it uh, outside of the music business, someone doesn't pick up on that. Or, uh, you know, those are the Easter eggs that you kind of have fun geeking out over. Um, did you do anything like that with Dead Space or Tomb Raider? I mean, was it, you know, did you think about something tribal for Tomb Raider, but then you thought that might have been too, too on the nose? Well, um, uh, t- uh, well, I know. So first, the first Dead Space was literally all of us hanging on white knuckled as the game like threw us into the stratosphere and then dropped us like three miles at 3000 miles an hour and then back up again and then back down again. It was such a crazy just like, oh, my gosh, the whole entire time because we were trying so many new things um, with the second Dead Space. I, I sort of felt a little more relaxed because I'd already done all this crazy stuff and had almost figured it out but i was also terrified because the only directive from ea was yeah just 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 do that again because the game got such a positive response when it came out um but what i knew i wanted to do there was a lot going on with isaac in dead space 2 and sort of his he had a bit of a character arc where the first one he didn't really have much of one a lot more happened with him and nicole in the second one and um the only request from EA is they wanted it bigger than the first game, which is sort of like, okay, I'm, I already, you know, I had everyone blowing and, and, and strings as loud as they can. There's no way I can get it any bigger. But I realized I could make it feel like it was bigger if I compared it with bits of music that were a lot smaller and quieter. So the whole point of the score basically became positioning a string quartet real close up front kind of solo intimate personal sound with this gigantic orchestra. And that way the orchestra sounded a lot bigger and scarier as a result of the quiet string quartet. But I wrote a theme. It's like a uh, bum, 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 just four notes, uh, which are actually um, D flat, E natural, A flat, D natural. So they're D E A D. And that was the main theme for Dead Space 2. Nice. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I love that. Oh, and you even put that together. That's wonderful. Um, I loved it. Uh, uh, here's a fun question for you. Um, I recently sure. uh, wrote an article about the best music uh, moments in movies. And I'm curious on what yours would be. If it's something uh, like the Black Awareness Rally in Coming to America with Randy Watson and Sexual Chocolate covering the Whitney Houston song, or if it's a score uh, in a particular movie, uh, what are some of your favorite uh, music moments in film? Gosh, Coming to America, that's so great. Do you know they're doing a sequel to that? Yes, yes, we do. (laughs) 
<laughs> so exciting. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm one of those guys who will watch a mediocre or even bad movie if the music is good, and who gets really annoyed if a really great film has music that doesn't live up to its kind of film title. So a lot of times I'll see all the ones I'm thinking of right now are, are just so old and I'm going to sound like uh, super dated, but um, a part of it is my, my 15 year old Mally who did all the voices on little hope for me. We probably watch two or three movies a week together just after everyone's gone to bed and um, we'll watch, we'll watch new movies. Or we'll rent something, but we also watch a lot of old movies. We watched Total Recall last night, so there's an amazing Jerry Goldsmith score that's just fantastic. Um, but what I think one of the ones that really gets me is um, Legends of the Fall. James Horner did Legends of the Fall, and it just breaks my heart every time I hear it. Um, John Williams, Angela Ashes, Angela's Ashes is just some of the most gorgeous just depressingly Dorian um, string writing that I've, that I've ever heard. But also I love um, Williams did Stanley and Iris, which is this beautiful piano and small string ensemble and like three French horns and solo woodwinds. Um, that's an amazing score as well. And those are just the ones that pop into my head. But um, I mean, all the Williams stuff, I couldn't even, I mean, all the Jurassic Parks and Indiana Jones and Star Wars, and they're they're all fantastic. But I tend to gravitate towards the more romantic sounding scores. Um, I think just because they they move, move me emotionally. Like I love Hook. It was a you know the movie was fine, but oh my gosh, the music is so amazing. It's like Stravinsky and. Uh, Ravel, uh, you know, crammed into a a film score. Um, right, it it is. I could. Yeah. I mean, I could keep. I could keep talking. No, no, no. Go. That that's great. And I think uh, Mark actually. I think with it recently scored. Uh, not like scored like musically, but he found an original copy of the Hook soundtrack on vinyl. Is that correct? It, yes, the the Hook the Hook soundtrack was awesome. I, I had to get that all the way from Greece on eBay. Um, and it came with wow. uh, it came with stamps uh, with uh, Alexandre Duplaz's um, face on it because he was uh, he's Greek or part Greek, and it was just it was you know like really obscure title. I didn't even know they pressed it on vinyl, so that was cool to have. That Glad I have it. Crazy. That is uh, that I, I love you know the records and uh, getting things. Is there like? a most bizarre, strange, curious recording in your collection, whether it be an MP3 or a CD or a record that you have in your possession, Jason? I've got a, I've got a limited edition. Uh, it's not a vinyl because this wasn't a thing back at the time, but I'm trying to remember what the score was. It's a John Williams uh, with songs um, like from the 60s. Uh, it came out, there were like a thousand copies or something and Williams signed it. And the uh, the the lyricist signed it, and I've got that I've got that tucked away. Uh, but I also have um, a copy of E.T. that Williams personally signed for me when I when I met him, and basically just you know 
pontificated for five minutes while he sat down and politely listened to me blather on. But he's he signed the CD for me and posed for a picture. And that's probably my number one, you know, f- favorite. Uh, we'll never be able to replace collectible. That is that is great to personalize. Oh, that's that's great from from Williams. That's uh, yeah. That yeah. is that is excellent, but uh, yeah. That- oh, oh, but I oh I forgot. Yeah, I also have I got uh, Elmer Bernstein signed to Kill a Mockingbird for me. Um, he taught when I was at school um, at USC, and then uh, one of the first jobs I got was uh, doing the like Game Boy music for Wild Wild West, which is a movie he scored. And um, they it was funny because they had no like link to Elmer at all. They just wanted the the music to sort of sound like the movie. And I said to the developer, well, they haven't even scored the movie yet. I mean, how are we like, Oh, well, you know, I mean, it's like a Western and it's got Will Smith and, and whatever. And so I just, I called up, uh, Elmer's wife. I had her phone number still from, from school and just said, I know this sounds really crazy, but I'm doing the video game that Elmer's doing the music for. And she goes, Oh my gosh, we are, we're, we're recording next week. You should come to the session. So I got to fly out to L.A. and I literally sat next to Barry Sonnenfeld, the director, all day long, and we talked about everything from the you know from food and traffic in L.A. and everything else, and and our kids to uh, you know the music as Elmer was sitting there conducting the orchestra um, right in front of us. For he was there for like a week, I think, but I was I was only there for a day. So I, I got a copy of the score, of course the conductor score for Wild Wild West, but I had brought To Kill a Mockingbird and he signed it for me there. So I, I get, that's got to be right up there with, with Williams. It's just, I was on a, my mind was stuck on Williams for a while. So yeah, that, uh, and I we got a Chris Young CD that he signed for me as well. Okay, I'll, I'll stop. Um, yeah, it, it, John Dibney signed something for me at a recording session too. <laughs> it, was, um, it was Elf, which was just such a fantastic movie. Uh, but I was working on Zathura I was doing the game score and he was doing the film and I was literally in LA at the time. So I got to go to 20th Century Fox and hung out with John Favreau as Debney uh, recorded and conducted the score. And I got him to sign Elf for me um, there. I, that's There's a lot of that video game film connection. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith and Harry Gregson Williams and... Um, you know, Elmer and, and uh, Chris Young and you know, all these all these guys that I knew from school, but then I was able to reach out to professionally afterwards. It was just amazingly satisfying. I, I like this collection you have uh, of the composer yeah. signing uh, <laughs> tracks. Now, now it's like, oh, my goodness, can we get you like an I, uh, um a, a Philip Glass signed Koyani Scotsy or Candyman soundtrack? <laughs> Oh yeah, I know. I got him. He signed. Um, he. I don't remember what the CD was. They they came here to North Carolina, and were playing on one of the college campuses. So we went to the show, and then he did a signing afterwards. Not quite as, you know, not quite as cool um, on a professional level. But oh my gosh, it's Philip Glass. Come yeah. on, I'm not going to complain. No, that's a uh, that's super cool. I like this. Uh, that's a cool. That's a cool collection uh, that you got going. Uh, but yes. Uh, that that kind of wraps up our uh, our podcast for the day. Thank you, uh, Jason, Sweet. for being on the show, sharing all these really cool stories, and uh, tell tell the listeners where everybody can find you. Do you have a website, social media, uh, YouTube? Because I know you you I, I saw uh, I believe it's your YouTube. You have 
uh, some stuff doing music and animals and whatnot on the property. <laughs> yes, yes, it's called uh, uh, it's called Audio Arc. Um, I'm talking about music and, and audio, but occasionally there's some animal animal guest stars, and all the thumbnails are different animals around the house. Uh, one guy actually emailed me and said, I love your channel, but what's with all the adorable animals on your thumbnails? I was like, well, if you love the channel, did you not watch? Yeah, I think I explained it in like the first the first episode. So yes, I've got uh, YouTube. Um, I think it's just called Audio Arc, but uh, Jason Graves, you know, YouTube would probably work. Um, it's JG Music on Twitter. And uh, Instagram, whatever the Instagram thing is, I think it's Jason Graves Music. And uh, the website's just Jason Graves. Basically, if you type in Jason Graves Music anywhere, I think you'll be able to find everything you need. I'm pretty sure all the social links are on my website. Perfect, perfect. Go visit that, uh, download this music, watch these TV shows, buy these games because they're so much fun. Uh, but that wraps it up for the Unbalanced Note. We are on Spotify, we are on iTunes, we are on iHeartRadio. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we look forward to having you on again soon. Oh, totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jason.